Hi everyone, James here. I just wanted to start with an apology. Unfortunately, the audio is very bad in this episode. Um, some of our microphones failed, so we only had one mic, uh, and you'll be hearing it from that. So it's going to be a bit tinny, a little bit like we recorded in a toilet, but that's kind of back to our roots, because that's what most of our early ones were like. Uh, but enjoy the show anyway. We think it's a good one. Get through the audio. Next week will be much better. thing is a fish, a weekly podcast this week coming to you from the Soho Theatre in central London. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Anna Chizinski, James Harkin, and Andy Murray. This is our one-year special. It's our birthday. We've once again sat around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. <laughs> Starting with you, Andrew Hunter Murray. Hello. My fact is that the route for the Hong Kong ultramarathon is to run up and down the same stretch of road 25 times. <laughs> um, this has been in the news a bit recently, It's because uh, it's just happened, the, the first ever ultramarathon they've had on this route, for want of a better word. Um, and it's, it's 31 miles long, because apparently anything longer than the standard 26.2 is an ultramarathon, uh, which I think is cheating, because I think it should be at least double. <laughs> and I say that as someone who's never run more than 200 metres. <laughs> and that was at sports day. And I came fourth. Out of four. Out of four. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. Um, well, well, so how far do you say it was? It's 31 miles. Oh, uh, yeah, because normally ultramarathons are more like 100 miles. Oh, 100 yeah. miles, 200 miles, whatever. But if they had done that here, there probably would have been suicides of boredom. <laughs> <laughs> I read that, actually, sorry, I read that if you run 200 miles, it's less tiring than if you run 100 miles. Right. Have you told um, anyone who's actually yeah. tried it? That can't be true. Yeah, apparently what happens is um, when you know it's going to be much longer, your intensity is much lower, and so you take take your time a lot more, and they found that people who do the longer ones feel better at the end. So you're just saying you do it much more slowly. You're saying it takes... You conserve your energy better. You walk it. You walk it. <laughs> You get the tube. <laughs> so the thing about this marathon is that everyone's been describing it, particularly the people doing it, as the most boring marathon possible because of the repetitions. And I was looking into boring marathons, and there is an annual boring marathon. What? Yeah, there's an annual boring marathon. There's an ultra boring marathon. <laughs> and it's actually apparently quite exciting. It's just it happens to take place in a town oh, or a city boring called America. Boring yeah. Oregon City. Oregon, yeah. yeah. Which is an actual place, and their motto is, the most exciting place to live. <laughs> they're, uh, they're twinned with a town called Dull in Scotland. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they have a, an annual dull and boring day, uh, which is, I think, it was August 9th. Someone worked out recently the most boring day in modern history, um, and it was April the 11th, 1954. Oh, yeah, So, a bad, a bad time. It was a, a scientist developed a computer programme to work out the day where the least interesting stuff happened. It included a general election in Belgium. So, sorry, sorry, Belgians. Um, the, the front page of the New York Post was two cops attending a conference on juvenile delinquency. Front page news. So, they, they put that into a machine, right? And it's generated. So, it was like three million bits of information. 300 million. Three, was it 300 million? It was. Wow. So, they said, find us the most boring day. They came up with this date, April 11th, 1954. 
Uh, I, I read this as well. Side note to it, which actually caught my eye more than the fact itself, is that the guy who was a Cambridge scientist, he's a computer programmer, his name, uh, his name is William Tunstall Pedo. <laughs> You'd change your surname, wouldn't you? I was trying to research the fact, I got so sidelined. But you're keeping that? You know Charles Dickens came up with boredom, as in he invented the word. Yeah, I've read his books, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I am Charles Dickens! Um, yeah, it's in Bleak House. He says someone is bored to death by marriage. So... Oh. Yeah. So maybe it means like people just assume that's what it meant. Maybe it meant thrilled. Maybe boredom means thrilled. Thrill. Is that what people yeah. say to me when I'm talking to them in the pub and they're saying I'm so bored? Yeah. They're actually saying they're thrilled. Is that why you keep going on and on? <laughs> <laughs> there's um, there's a tribe in Papua New Guinea called the Baining, and they value work as the highest ideal. The best thing you do is work, uh, and they have been called unstudiable because of their failure to do anything interesting. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> so harsh, isn't it? <laughs> um, there was an anthropologist called Gregory Bateson who, said, who spent 14 months attempting to study them in the 1920s before giving up entirely. <laughs> Didn't, they don't even like sex, is that right? Yeah, they, oh, don't, they, don't, like they don't like it very much. No, they don't like it, but they do have kids. Uh, but often a lot of adoption because they don't really want to have kids. Well, and, what, wait, where do they adopt them from? Must <laughs> be neighbouring tribes or something. Yeah, right? I don't know. But they also don't like play because it's a natural state of children and they don't like children. Uh, and they sometimes <laughs> they will punish their children who are playing by putting their hands in the fire. <laughs> what? That's not boring. <laughs> that's, that's an exciting thing to do as a kid. Um, I think the most boring sport. Ever. The most boring sporting event ever was the cycling event of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, okay. where it involved people watching two people who were cycling head-to-head, sitting still on bicycles for more than an hour. What, were they exercise bikes? No, it was that, you know, it's the, it's the sprint cycle when it goes head-to-head, oh, yeah. and you know, they often like hover at the start of it, oh, so one yeah. can, because I think, is it, is it a slipstream thing? So, because yeah. they want the other person to start cycling first, so they can get in their slipstream, right. and these two guys just had this standoff. <laughs> <laughs> Still on the bikes, bouncing on the bikes for over an hour. An hour bouncing and on the bikes, though, that's pretty hard. Isn't on, it? Yeah, I know, impressive. Yeah, in I would, that sounds exciting to me. Because you constantly be wondering, oh, he's going. No, he's going. No, he's going. The commentator had to leave. Um, had to something else to get on with. <laughs> the excitement was too much. <laughs> Can't handle this. Do you know the the, uh, the the way they induce boredom? If scientists want to test boredom. Obviously, there are definite ways of doing it. So, to do pain, they put your hand in a bucket of icy water, and to do boredom, they make you copy out the phone book. That's the official. That's the official way of doing it. But if they want to really test you, they just make you read the phone book. And so you have to focus on it and really concentrate. And it, but it improves uh, your uh, creativity. What, so reading the phone doctors? Well, being bored, oh. as in by, induced by this in the experiment they did. So they tested, uh, they had people who could uh, just copy numbers out of a phone book or not do that. And um, at the end of that, everyone who'd been in it was asked to, this is the test, think of as many uses as they could for a pair of plastic cups. <laughs> <laughs> Which is apparently a test of divergent thinking and how crazy and creative you are. Yeah. And uh, people who'd been uh, reading the phone book or copying it out were much more creative. Yeah. Mm. They'll like throw them at the person who told me to read the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And there's a t scientific test, uh, the boredom proneness scale, that's come up with by two psychologists, and it's 28 statements which you have to agree or disagree with, uh, and it consists of statements including, I have projects in mind all the time, things to do, or, much of the time, I just sit around doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> if you can do that successfully, I don't think you're easily bored. No. I, I, sometimes, I sometimes read my own phone book and test myself on with, like, people I've forgotten who they are. <laughs> who is Rose? Who is that? Does anyone else do that? Yeah. Yeah. One yes, one yes, thank you. <laughs> I did a terrible thing the other day. I got, a, um, I got a message on my phone from someone saying, hey, how's it going? And you know that terrible moment when you haven't got their number... Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, the message is so familiar, I definitely know who this is, they're going to hate. So I have to do the old classic, sorry, it's a new phone, uh, I haven't got your number. Who is it? And the person wrote back going, it's Sheila. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did the lamest thing that I've done in years, I wrote back going, sorry, uh, I'm Australian, there's a lot of Sheilas. <laughs> Which one are you? Um, I found a, uh, this, the most boring, this, it's very unfortunate, there's a resort in Switzerland, and I was a bit confused because it's described as a village and a resort, so I have a feeling yeah. the village is like a ski resort. Yeah, um, and it's been described as the most boring resort in Switzerland, and oh. you know when it's like, oh, I had a nice time, they're, all of their things is just, this is so dull, this is my <laughs> dull place. And the tourist board there released a statement, they said that they think they got this title because their quiet village has nothing, does nothing, and offers nothing. And then they added, we think that's a positive. But so they've combated it now by going, they had a meeting, and they're like, how do we sort out the boredom levels of our, of our town? How do we make it exciting and vibrant? And um, they started a, um, a stone-skipping competition, <laughs> which they're now trying to make a, a worldwide thing. But then they found out that another similarly dull town also decided the way to combat boredom was to set up a Skimming Stones competition. So they had to call them and say, could we do the qualifying round before they get to you? <laughs> <laughs> so you can't even go and see the finals. Yeah, no, see. yeah. Okay, some stuff on ultramarathons. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so ultramarathon athletes sometimes have all their toenails removed. Before or after? Before. Or, not during, but like in between races. So, like, off, it? Yeah. so you'll end up, you'll run and you'll have real problems with your toenails and they'll get worse and worse and then they get better and then once they've been a problem once, they get worse and worse all the time. Uh, and so, yeah, quite often they'll have them taken off completely. What? Yeah. It reminds how? me of that. How? How, um, they, how? Yeah, how? How do they take them off? Do you want me to show you? <laughs> Uh, they, with surgeon, uh, surgeon would do it. Yeah. That's not the method. <laughs> I wanted a method. Um. I think it's a yank. <laughs> and the other thing that happens in ultra-American uh, people is their body gets in such um, trouble because they're really, really pushing it that they are insatiable and want to have lots and lots of sex, apparently. This wow. is according to one of the athletes. <laughs> Who I met in a pub. <laughs> Yes, he was boring, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> no, he said... <laughs> he says that when, is, when a person is in dire straits like that, sex becomes a priority because naturally we want to perpetuate the species. What? We want to procreate. So it's like, we're in such trouble, we're about to die, we need to have kids quickly. That's what he said. <laughs>
wow, okay. Um, marathons were considered so dangerous that they weren't supposed to happen again, weren't they? In 1902 um, yeah. Olympics, or was it 1904, no, yeah, the 1904 Olympics? Um, the, it, it was decided because it was so badly done um, that one guy, so the doctors drove in front of them along this dust track and like <laughs> moved on. <laughs> all all <laughs> one of them did, one of them collapsed, had like a pulmonary failure or something, collapsed, oh. very nearly died because he'd inhaled so much dust. Um, another one, the guy who won in the end, collapsed and had to be picked up and was given strychnine, which is that um, pesticide that we now use on oh, yeah. crops um, to try and stimulate him and then some brandy. It wow. was a, at that time, it was a useful stimulant that didn't do anything except slowly kill you. Um, <laughs> and then there was a guy who won initially who was called Someone Laws who decided he couldn't hack it after about nine kilometers and jumped in a car, passed by, waved all the other athletes, jumped out at the other end, sprinted to the finish line, the 50 yards. Um, and one. 50 yards! And then. <laughs> there was no one nearby, presumably, because I would stop a mile back, you know. <laughs> oh, just thinking, well, what he claimed was when he was taking his trophy and someone did say, by the way, I did see you drive <laughs> most of the way. Uh, he did say he'd always been meaning to give it back, it was just a joke, but that is the kind of thing you, you think, I'll claim this, and if no one says anything, I've won. And if they do, I'll just say I was kidding. Um, Anyway, yeah, I think Lance Armstrong was going to do that, wasn't he? <laughs> that was just a joke, guys. <laughs> Have you heard of uh, Rosa Ruiz? No. no. She, uh, she won the 1980 Boston Marathon. She's a 23-year-old New Yorker, and she was very, very fast. She was the third fastest time ever recorded for a female runner. Uh, and she was completely sweat-free and composed when she crossed the finishing line. Um, Car. Obviously. No one saw her during the race. Um, no, none of the checkpoints, none of the other runners. Photographs of the race, she was nowhere. Um, she was so fast, they couldn't get her in the photo. <laughs> um, she, not car, subway. She just, <laughs> just got subway straight across. And um, Does it count, though, if you're still running while you take all these shortcuts? If you ran to the subway and just had to... That's your count, Just right? on the spot, on yeah, the train. Yeah. Like, I was running. I just got creative with it. Yeah. But again, she just jumped back in half a mile before the end. Which seems very cocky. Yeah. Mind you, often in subways you have to run up a lot of stairs. I reckon that's more tiring. <laughs> that would be my yeah. We've got to move on very oh, soon sure. to the next fact. Can I, can I just quickly give a few Hong Kong things? Yeah. Because yeah. so, I'm, I'm born and raised in Hong Kong. and there's I a... bet, Can I bet money on a Hong Kong fact that you will say in the next... 20 seconds. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm just wondering if there's a Hong Kong fact about Bruce Lee to follow. No, there's not. Oh no. my god! Although, there is a good Bruce Lee fact. See, <laughs> <laughs> you've, made it, you've made it through. Why did I do it? <laughs> no, he was the 1958 cha-cha champion in Hong Kong. There you go. How many people have it? As you were. If, thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, one thing I discovered was that after the handover happened, there were a lot of things that the Chinese admitted to doing that they were sort of tripping the British colonialists about uh, when they first arrived. And one thing was the names of places in Hong Kong. And I've been to a lot of these places, and I had no idea that their translations meant what they are. So, for example, there's a place called uh, He Siwan. So when the British were like, oh, what's this called? They went, oh, it's He Siwan. That translates as vagina discharge bay. <laughs> Vaginal discharge bay. Uh, there's New Shiwu, which is cow shit lake. Uh, and Dao Tao, which is penis head rock. Uh, and these have been on signs in Hong Kong for ages, and they've, ch they've started changing some, so foreign devil's sex organ is now changed. 
has become Pyramid Rock, and Oral Sex Corner is now Swimming Dragon Cape. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> I had no idea when I was there. Yeah. Um, we, did you guys have any more that we... Yeah, that's really awesome. Yep. Okay, time for fact number two, and that is Chuzinski. Yep, my fact is that the meter is wrong. <laughs> Typical Anna. Everyone, everything's wrong because it's really I hate it. What, what um, on earth could that mean? So, the meter, it was determined that the uh, meter, so in a guy called Pierre Mecher uh, was a French astronomer. In the 1790s, he determined that he would create a, they decided to go to a decimal system and the meter would be the unit of the system and it would be exactly one ten millionth of the distance between the equator and the North Pole. Um, so he went on this uh, big tour to uh, measure out arcs of the Earth and stuff and do calculations to work out what a meter was. And there was a slight error in his calculations, a slight problem with one of his bits of equipment. And he was 0.16 of a millimeter out for every meter. The oh, meter wow. we use now, he realized that he'd gone wrong. Um, and so we tried to draw people's attention to it. But at that point, they were like, we've made all these like meter long <laughs> sticks. Uh, we can't just go and unmake them. Um, and so it just stayed that way. So he that, was, I mean, but that's so unscientific for how science usually works. Well, we've made them now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to have to be it. Sorry. I heard that he went back to where he had made the original mistake later in his life. And he wanted to correct it. He was on this campaign to get it corrected. Uh, and he got to where he'd made the mistake, where he caught malaria and died. <laughs> well, just goes to show, never check. <laughs> He kept, um, he kept getting arrested, didn't he, when he was doing all this stuff, because yeah. it was during the revolution, and people thought that his, um, his uh, what do you call these things, instruments. his instruments were weapons, didn't they? Yeah. And so he just kept him in prison all the time. Yeah. And it was that, but that was actually a good thing. Well, was it good or was it bad? Because it was when he was in prison that he realised he'd got it wrong. He thought, I've got nothing else to do except recheck my calculations. And when he did that, he realised it was wrong. Uh, um, but then it didn't do much good. So in fact, there was, in 1875, there was the Treaty de la Metra, or the Treaty of the Meter, in thank France. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> oh. Saved me ten valuable minutes there. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it, and I remember you were here, and, <laughs> and um, that decided to consecrate his wrong meter into like being the actual meter, so to say, actually, Meshan's meter is the proper meter, the meter is now going to be one meter and 0.16 millimeter long, and so they created the standard meter um, at this conference, so they had to create an exact replica of the wrong meter, but this time say, this is now the right meter. <laughs> But they couldn't just take his wrong one and say, this is the standard meter, because that had been wrong. Does that make sense? <laughs> it didn't. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I'm still on Treaty de la Metro. So before this happened, in 18th century France, there were more than 250,000 different types of measurement in France. What? I know. How many people were there? <laughs> Was it just... Just different weights and measurements and... 250,000. Yeah. It's a lot, isn't it? They were told they were being really arrogant, weren't they, when they wanted to go to the decimal system and there were a lot of people saying, I can't believe you think you can just like make the whole world abide by your ridiculous system. But obviously they did. Japan went metric in 1924 and no one noticed or did anything about it and they had to do it again <laughs> 40 years later. <laughs> Well, I think the US has tried to a few times. In yeah. 
60s they were saying let's do it and they just never got around to it yeah. and now because there are three countries that are metric aren't there um so burma liberia and the us but burma's about to go imperial now so it's about to just be us yeah, and about liberia. To yeah about to go metric sorry What's so it's just be Liberia and America left. Yeah. Wasn't there that great? I don't know the full fact. I hope you guys do. Which is that. Um, <laughs> that was complete the facts. <laughs> um, Mount Everest, uh, yeah. when that was originally measured, yeah. uh, what was it? Twenty nine thousand uh, feet. Yeah. So the the, the well, first to say it. Yeah, yeah, go yeah. for it. Yeah. So they worked out exactly how tall it was. It was twenty nine thousand feet. Uh, but they thought that if they put that as the actual number, people won't believe them and think that they would think they just rounded them up. And so they put an extra two feet on top, so they called it 29,002 feet. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? You've just done this incredible thing. You've measured the greatest mountain, the highest, tallest mountain in the world, and it's a perfect number. And you can't tell them that it's that. Because <laughs> no one will believe you. Poor guy. You must have been like, I can't fucking believe my luck. That's nuts. Um, I really, I really like mistakes. I think history, uh, definitely, some of the things that we find as an everyday thing, like the meter, is as a result of a of a mistake. Um, one of the things that almost seems to have come out of being mistakes is um, phosphorus uh, matches the, oh, yeah. the head of matches. The only reason, I mean, we may have got to it eventually, but the actual reason that we did end up getting to it is because a guy in 1675 called Hennig Brand um, got obsessed with the idea that he could make gold uh, by converting buckets of urine into gold. So in his basement he had 50 buckets of urine going, I'm onto a winner here. And it went all soupy, and it went all waxy, and it just didn't at all go goldy. Um, if he had a cleaner, he must have had to have a note on every single bucket. Please leave. <laughs> but so, but the, the, the weird um, byproduct of him doing this is that it actually led to Aside from the tubs of urine. Yeah, well, well, no, the tubs of urine did this waxy substance that he ended up having, um, sort of lit up when light was making contact with it, and they were going, what is this? And they realized this was a way of making fire, and so um, actually each bucket became way more worth than gold. So he actually exceeded the amount of money that he would have made from turning that into gold. Is that incredible? If, if I shine a light... No, no, it's like setting light, setting light to it. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Do you know the first matches were a yard long? <laughs> Seriously, the first sold matches. And the guy who invented them sold 168 in something like three years. Um, and they were a toy for, the, for rich people. And um, they were also incredibly dangerous because once you'd lit it, um, it was more like a home science kit almost. It wasn't a practical thing. But once you lit it, the globule of flaming stuff had this amazing tendency to just fall to the ground <laughs> and set fire to whatever you were standing on at the time. I guess because they were very practiced at lighting matches, so once you no, lit well, not it, they were a yard long as well. That must have taken two people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Good for bonding. Maybe that's why they did it. Maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. Um, before the 19th century, there was a unit of measurement which was called a lot. <laughs> How many was that? It was not about, very much. Not very much. <laughs> it was, no, it wasn't. It was a thirtieth of a pound. That so was not a lot. That's great. The word acre used to mean an open field of no particular measurement. <laughs> and yard comes from Saxons used to wear like a girdle that comes from the same origin as gird, doesn't it? Because it's from a belt that people used to wear, and then they take it off to measure something when they needed to. 
Um, no speculating as to what. And um, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. Some people understood. How big is this course? <laughs> Um, so there are some other good units of measurement. The GAN, you all know the GAN? No. The GAN is a unit of measurement that measures space sickness, and it's named after, he was the first US politician to go into space, actually. Um, it was named after Senator Jake GAN, who was so sick during a space mission that now Senate one GAN is considered very space sick. That's great. That's like the, uh, the mini Helen. The Mini Helen is the amount of beauty you need to launch one ship. Uh, yeah. It's weird, lots of uh, units of measurement that we have are quite similar. So there's a Japanese measurement called, uh, I'll mispronounce this, but Kanejaku, it's an obscure one, uh, as in it's not used anymore. But it's about the same as an English foot, and both of those things are about the same length as the average man's foot. So it's a sort of, you know, common origin for lots of these things, which is quite cool. Like the cubit is the distance from it, what is it, your elbow to to, yeah. to to the beginning of your hand. So you would send out someone with a big arm to buy cloth in ancient <laughs> Egypt because they would be able to get more cloth for their money because they had bigger arms. Just one guy with a really massive arm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just one, one more, like one huge arm. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing that we took so long to get to grips with the fact that all humans are different sizes and we can't base a measurement system yeah. on the fit of a human body. There's one called a pied de, ro pied de roi, which is uh, Charlemagne introduced, and it was supposedly you know, the size of his foot. It wasn't. It was, it was, uh, it, he was just trying to standardise things. But so it was bigger than his foot, or smaller than his foot? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know what size his foot was, but I also don't know what size the thing was. So it could, so it could be actually, yeah. I think it was. You know what they say about men with indeterminate sized feet. Can I just say very quickly, just as a side note, um, every time that we've said, oh, what's that called? Someone from the crowd has gone, it's called that. You don't get this at any other comedy gig, where the audience are treating it like a pub quiz. What was that? Are you here? Yeah, can you not hear it? Every time. Every time. Listen out. It'll be there. The ca just quickly, the carrot, I just, it's kind of interesting, the carrot measurement for um, diamonds is from carob seeds, because they thought, people used to think that all carob seeds weighed exactly the same amount, so they don't weigh the same amount. Yeah. No. Like, um, who was it? Was it Bach who weighed out 60 coffee beans for each cup of coffee he drank? Oh, yeah. Oh, he, sorry, he didn't weigh them out. He counted them out. Yeah, it was one of them. It was Bath. It was, it was whoever wrote the coffee cantata, which I think was Bath. He wrote a whole thing in praise of coffee. Who was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, having counted the coffee beans, Bath wrote the coffee cantata. Fucking told you. Thank <laughs> you. Um, guys, we're going to have to move yeah. on to our next fact. <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> and the next fact comes from that lady in the audience. <laughs> Okay, time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that St. Andrew's Aquarium has three meerkats called Churchill, Admiral, and Sheila's Wheels. <laughs> I love that Sheila's Wheels meerkat. They also had a Viva and Direct Line, but they both died, unfortunately. <laughs> is that during the credit crunch? <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, meerkats and funny names. Right. Question. First of all, do does an aquarium have meerkats because they've realised there's no such thing as a fish? They had this little yeah. bit, it's a brilliant aquarium by the way, but they had this little bit um, of rock where they didn't have anything to put there and so they got offered some meerkats from another zoo and they said, yeah, great, meerkats, why not? Everyone loves meerkats. So you, um, just, you, you actually... I was there this weekend. That's yeah, you right. went, that's, that's how you found this out. Yeah. yeah. Did you so meet the meerkats? I did meet the meerkats and fed the, uh, what do you call these things, penguins? <laughs> <laughs> and saw all the different fish. Yeah, it was great. Really, really good. Definitely recommend it. So why are they, why are they named the... Um, oh, so they were named uh, by someone on Facebook and they thought they were such great names that we'll name them that. They have... <laughs> Wait, they know they're existing names, don't they? The <laughs> <laughs> meerkats. Yeah. No, they were allowed to name them when they... They were born there and they were allowed to name them. Right. In my head, Admiral has a tiny jacket with epaulettes. <laughs> and the main two are called Kate and Wills. And the others are named after members of the, um, of the royal family as well. And they have a penguin who is called Andy Murray... Uh, do they? Uh, yeah, they do, and it's a female. Okay. <laughs> and all the other penguins are named after the Murray family, uh, not your family. <laughs> a tennis player. Yeah. Um, interestingly, that the meerkats are named after Kate and Wills because meerkats too are threatened by inbreeding in their natural. <laughs> So, uh, meerkats, um, when they're fighting, they line up in a line and then just charge at each other. Really? Yeah, like a... Well, like a horizontal line or like a cube? Like a horizontal line. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like one against the other one and they just charge into each other. Yeah, and, and that is how naval warships yeah, fought exactly, in yeah. the old days. So presumably Admiral... <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, and one way they stop from, them from fighting each other is because they get a lot of their thing from scent. They rub Vicks vapor rub on the meerkats because then they can't smell each other and they don't get angry with each other. But they also can't smell who's related to them. <laughs> no, but that's that's a good thing. They because they recently had one meerkat who was completely segregated. They just were like we don't want you, and they named the meerkat Oliver Twist because he was orphaned. And one of the guys there had to look after Oliver Twist and. That was the sentence. He said, "We're gonna, we're gonna completely cover them in Vix. Uh, what's it called? Vapor rub. Vapor rub. And um, we're gonna cover him as well, and that will allow him back into the group yeah. because they won't know that he wasn't smelling the same as us." So it just reminded me of a brilliant thing that I read this week. You, you have already, I'm sure, a new scientist, which is that when you shake someone's hand, you smell your hand afterwards because you're trying to get the scent of the person who you shook hands with. And all humans have been doing this forever, and no one's ever noticed. <laughs> Not me, I can assure you, I don't do that. They, um, they videoed a load of people um, in a room uh, shaking hands and counted how often they were touching their faces around their nose and mouth, and it was a certain number, and when they shook hands, it always went up. It's amazing. That's incredible. It's such a good I've been watching um, my people boyfriend should... uh, over the weekend. We found various instances that we'd like, play a little board game, shake hands after them, and then I watched him, and he holds his nose after he shakes hands with me, yeah, which I have not taken as a good sign. <laughs> Um, on meerkats, uh, they're the only animal we've observed, aside from us, who we've seen like employing proper teaching methods to teach their young 
how to hunt. So because they hunt individually, you can't the young can't just follow their parents around to see how they hunt. So the parents bring back dead animals and then explain to their kids how to dismember them. Um, another thing meerkat mothers do is they kill the children of other meerkat mothers so that those mothers will breastfeed their own children so that they can go out and have fun. Um, <laughs> nice guys. Um, so they turn that mother into a babysitter because she's lactating anyway. So she'll be like, okay, you can look after my kids and I've killed yours. I'm going to go out on the town. They are. They're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not good pets, apparently, according to some websites, uh, because they can be very cruel to each other, aggressive to people they don't know, and they smell quite ferrety. <laughs> like you to meet Hannah? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I was reading about aquariums, um, and I read about London's very first aquarium, which was the Royal Aquarium. Right. You guys heard about the Royal Aquarium? No. Uh, it was basically it was 1903, uh, just, sorry, just before 1903, because um, it was pulled down in 1903. It had huge tanks, it was, it was ginormous, uh, central London, and uh, the reason it was pulled down and didn't do so well is that all of these giant tanks contained no fish. <laughs> they were completely empty because they because they marketed it as having um, sea life, so they needed salt water, and they realized how expensive that was, and they couldn't afford to actually put the right amount of uh, water wow. in there with the relevant fish. So people used to come and just look at tanks of water <laughs> with the promise that one day that there would wow. be fish in them. But I don't think that was the first one, because the first one, I think, was at London Zoo, oh, yeah. which would have been... When did you say yours was? 1903. It was taken down. London Zoo's opened in the mid-19th century, and it was called the Aquarium... But it used to be called Aqua Vivarium, which is a cool name. Um, and an aquarium was originally a watering place for cattle. So you see sometimes troughs where people used to let their horses and cows drink, and it has aquarium written on it. <laughs> And it looks like the worst aquarium in the world, but it's not. Um, so did they call it Aqua Vivarium so as not to be confused and have cattle turn up <laughs> hoping for a drink? Um, yeah. And then they had this thing called Aquarium Mania. Have you heard of this? No. This is so cool. Sounds great. Um, <laughs> so there was a guy called Philip Henry Goss, or Gosser. We can edit that as appropriate. Um, and he was one of the pioneers of basically allowing fish to survive, whether, you, you know, before that, basically everyone went, went around killing all fish, and he was like, no, this is wrong, we should let them survive. He came up with a system whereby you could keep fish in a tank, and they would get enough oxygen, and you need plants in there, and you need to yeah, get oxygen oh, yeah. in. But suddenly, everyone started getting aquariums. So people got them uh, set into their windows, some people, or put into chandeliers just hanging oh. from the ceiling. Some people um, built a birdcage into an aquarium so there would be a bird living in there surrounded by fish, which it could never eat. <laughs> Torture. Yeah. They've made a Nike trainer an, into an aquarium, Nike designers what? now. Um, it's, they've transformed it into, I don't know how functional it is as a trainer anymore, but it looks really cool if you look it up. They've turned into the aquarium. In the base of the shoe, do you mean? The whole shoe is an aquarium, so it's around the edges of the shoe, they filled it with water and put some fish in. That's incredible. That's quite cool. Wow. Yeah, well, that's weird. Also, there's the world's smallest aquarium, isn't there? That's uh, smaller than the shoe. Is that not it? Yeah. <laughs> it's not even a full shoe. It's like a heel. Um, I think this one is 24 millimeters high. So right. it's, it's for zebra fish. Um, oh. It's this guy, Anatoly Konenko, who just designed. Like he's a designer. His job is designing tiny things. Um, and so he's created the world's smallest book. Um, that's he's put it's the width of a human hair. 
Is it, is it advice on how to keep your new zebrafish? <laughs> um, just a few um, things. Oh, go on. I was just going to say, did anyone see the giant male octopus this week that was trying to escape from its yeah. aquarium? Oh yeah, yeah. Did anyone read what the aquarium? It was no. an aquarium in Seattle. The aquarium owner said, um, so there was so there's this octopus that's crawled up the sides of its aquarium and it's clutched at the outside <laughs> and it's got some of its tentacles on the outside and it's trying to get over um, and. Aquarium officials say the octopus named Ink was not attempting a jailbreak, but simply learning to embrace his new home with all eight arms. It was not an escape attempt, they said, um, whilst putting the lid back onto the <laughs> 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 so, uh, so some things about name changes and product placements and stuff like that. Oh yeah. So um, Aussie rules footballer Gary Hocking changed his name by Deepole to Whiskers one year, because he was paid a lot of money by them. And there was a Tongan rugby star, Epi Taioni, who changed his name to Paddy Power. Uh, and you can, you can change the name of your your stadium and stuff, um, but it doesn't always work out. The MLS side, Colorado Rapids, um, has changed their stadium to Dick's Sporting Goods Park, but everyone calls it The Dick. <laughs> yeah. I like changing your name by Beepol as well. I like all that kind of stuff. So there was a guy called Gary Brett from Potter's, Bra- uh, Potter's Bar. Potter's Bar had changed his name to Potter's Bar a few weeks before. He changed his name to Mr. Hong Kong Fooey. Okay. And he said, I've loved Hong Kong Fooey since I was a boy and always wanted to be named after him. I'm quite oh, no, serious. I <laughs> I'm quite serious about being known as Mr. Fooey. My wife was a bit upset, but she should be honoured to be married to a number one super guy who's quicker than the human eye. <laughs> and then there was a guy called Nigel Dial who changed his name to Mr. Toasted Tea Cake. Okay. And he said, some people can't believe it, especially because I don't even like tea cakes that much. <laughs> It was a nice name. It must be. It must be so horrid that if you love stupid names, that you've got to go to the to the what's the name? Dean Paul. Dean Paul. And you must be in the queue going, okay, this time it's just going to be Brian Smith. Change it to Brian <laughs> Smith. And you're saying hi to the guy in front of you. Oh, what are you changing your name to? Oh, Rainbow Sunshine Moondust. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> and then you get home to your wife. She's like, is it Brian Smith? It's Ask Mac a Dang Dang. I, I, just, I couldn't help myself. I just. <laughs> It must be so hard if you love a name. At least you're now married to a number one super guy. (laughs) There's a guy called Sean Hennessy who changed his name to Nigel Bottomface to win a bet with his friends. And he said, my mum was furious. (laughs) But at least I got a night out in Chelmsford. (laughs) Another sad life there. Um, Um, so we're going to have to move on, but do you want to get one more? Uh, oh, I've got some quite funny stuff on advertising. Okay, so the Churchill dog, with the, uh, so one of the fish was called Churchill, let's start with fact. The Churchill dog was initially a real bulldog uh, called Lucas, who had to be sacked after one advert because he refused to hold a phone in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> he refused? He went, oh no. <laughs> like, oh, no. Uh, we are going to have to move on. I'm going to have to move it on. Uh, so we move on to our final fact of the evening, and that is my fact. Uh, my fact this week is that the only ancient Egyptian socks that we know of all belonged to Tutankhamun. 
Is that awesome? When they, when he was, when Howard Carter went into the tomb, he found a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of gold, uh, a lot of walking sticks, uh, and he found three pairs of socks. And what's amazing is that up until finding these socks, there had been no depiction of socks in ancient <laughs> Egypt whatsoever, and I can't believe that that wasn't the headline. <laughs> they wore socks! Yeah. <laughs> also, because he wore sandals, it means that he was a socks and sandals guy. <laughs> Which is very exciting. Do you know what he had painted on the bottom of his sandals? No. This is cool. He had the faces of his enemies painted on the bottom, so that wherever he walked, he would be crushing them into the dust. Yeah, but except there was a lot of sand, so that would just be great branding, because you'd see the guy everywhere. <laughs> That's like the ultimate marketing device. You, Tutankhamun's enemy. <laughs> um, yeah, they have that. Um, so there were some socks that I think those weren't found intact, were they? They were reconstructed from the evidence that they had, but the oldest no, socks found intact. No, no, no. They, sorry, in, in his tomb, they found three that were completely intact, and then they found three that weren't, but they think that they must have been socks. They were the other pairs. Yeah, yeah. so he actually had six pairs, but three didn't make the 3,000-year period of time <laughs> that has since passed. There's, they also found a bottle of perfume, speaking of the 3,000 year period of time, um, which still, when they took the lid off, it still smelled. Um, I think it smelled oh. like... Um, something rotten. Uh, no, it, it smelled nice. It smelled like something like chamomile or vanilla or something. After 3,000 years. Um, he was also buried with his own baby clothes, which I think is quite sweet. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wonder why. There was actually a few toys. Weirdly, there was a boomerang. Yeah. yeah. Well, they used them to hunt. And they used lassoes as well. Did they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool, isn't it? Is yeah. it Australia? Yes. <laughs> it's not the thing we did with America where we thought it was India. And we just... It does sound like the outback from... Yeah. yeah. Wow. And he was buried with 413 what were called Shabti figures. And these were little uh, slaves that he would take um, into the next life. Because often people think that if you were the slave of a pharaoh and your pharaoh died, then you'd have to kill yourself and be buried with him. Or be buried alive with him, which is even worse. But that never happened. It was actually little models of you that you would... Oh. He was also buried with, James was telling me, an erection. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah, he um, he had a ninety degree erection. That's ninety right. degree, <laughs> uh, and he's the only um, known pharaoh, as far as I know, who was buried that way. And no one oh, really and knows James, that. And James has studied the field extensively. <laughs> there was a guy called George Glidden who was going to unwrap a mummy in front of a lot of people. He was a bit of a charlatan, but he did have a mummy, and he was going to unwrap them. And he said it was a princess, a princess mummy. And he claimed that he knew that. He knew her identity. He was, she was the daughter of an Egyptian priest. He knew that because he had deciphered the hieroglyphics on her sarcophagus. And then he unwrapped her and unwrapped her and unwrapped her in front of a load of people. And then they, re they realised, actually, that it was a man. And the princess had a rather large penis. <laughs> That's where we get the photo from, the princess and the penis. <laughs> And he, they, he was in Boston this, and he explained that his error was due to the poor handwriting of the sarcophagus. <laughs> a bad Egyptologist always blames the hieroglyphs. <laughs> That's funny. Um, have you heard of Mummy Pettigrew? No. Mummy Pettigrew was a guy called Thomas Pettigrew, and he, uh, he was he just unrolled loads of mummies all the time. He was an Egyptologist, and he unrolled fourteen of them, and he would do a six-part lecture series, and he would always save the unrolling for the very last lecture in the series to build up to it throughout it 
Uh, and I just found one sentence about it which I wanted to share, which is that Pettigrew's dramatic, erotically tinged unrollings became so popular that at one gathering, the Archbishop of Canterbury himself got squeezed out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most disturbing euphemism <laughs> And then later on, he was asked to turn a, a Victorian uh, duke into a mummy. There was a, the uh, Duke of Hamilton was obsessed with mummies, and he said, "Will you mummify me after I die?" And oh, he after did. he died. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he did it. But unfortunately, he didn't fit in the sarcophagus he'd had built, so they had to take off his feet. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, when they were excavating Tutankhamun's um, clothes, no, actually this was later on when they decided to recreate all his clothes, then the person who was recreating them decided to tell her students that the only way that they could work out exactly how he'd worn them was by trying them all on himself, themselves. So the students of this archaeologist got to just try and all Tutankhamun's clothes, and they worked yeah. out that something they thought was a headdress was actually um, a pair of uh, these things to be worn on the arms to form the wings of a falcon. Um, oh, wow. That's what he went around with. But well, I don't know how you work that out, and it sounds a bit like they were just pissing about. Like, <laughs> put a headdress on their arm and went, "You probably did." Um, he was a very strange shape. I think he. Uh, Sorry, <laughs> oh, right. um, had a congenital disease or something because yeah. his his hip measurements were extremely large. They were sort of out of proportion with the rest of his body, and we don't know why. Well, much like Kate and Wills, it was inbreeding. I'm talking about the meerkats. <laughs> meerkats, Kate and Wills. Yeah, no, his um, his parents were brother and sister, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I really like the... So when you were saying the thing of unwrapping the mummies, that was a massive craze that the Victorians went through where they suddenly were just digging up lots of mummies and using them for virtually everything. Railroads used to use them as fuel. They no, were just... that's not true. I promise that's not true. Oh, is true. that in America? They... Oh, okay. Mark, Mark, Mark Twain said that they did, and um, ah. we think he was taking the mickey. Oh, okay. Yeah. He is Sorry. a writer of Wait, so how about the time traveller guy who went to King Arthur's court? That's not... Oh, a... oh man. <laughs> I've got some terrible news for you about Bill and Ted's bogus journey. <laughs> yeah. How about Mummy Brown? Is that true? Mummy Brown is true. Yeah. Mummy Brown is amazing. Mummy Brown was, if you haven't heard of it, is a um, it was an it was a paint that that artists would use. It was ground up mummy that would lead to a brown, and they would use them on uh, on their paintings. And a lot of people didn't. They just thought it was a cute name, and then someone explained, no, it's an actual mummy, and. A lot of famous artists actually got quite disturbed by that and, and buried the rest of the paint, um, giving it an honourable burial. Because they just thought, well, they did, there was a lot of stuff about curses going on oh, back yeah. then, and they didn't want that. But yeah, you get paint. I can't believe that. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah, and they used it as like a panacea as well, didn't they? They would um, use this mummy and then they would take it as a, a medicine for any illness. Yeah. I think they used it, uh, people in uh, Thebes used it until the 20th century to heal bruises, really? which is amazingly cavalier, considering. <laughs> It's just a bruise. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, need to you don't need to heal a bruise. I'm, I'm you could get imitation mummy as well, if you didn't have the real thing. And so you would... Here's the ingredients. Take the carcass of a young man, some say red-haired, not dying of a disease, let it lie for 24 hours in clean water, cut the flesh into pieces, and add mare, a little aloe, and imbibe for 24 hours in the spirit of wine and turpentine. It doesn't sound artificial to me. <laughs> it sounds real. Yeah, it's real, but not old. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was looking at burial, interesting burial sites um, okay. and burial rituals. But So the Vikings, um, they were buried on ships, obviously, but not at sea. And I read a really interesting theory that because they were often buried with decapitated animals. So the um, Osberg, Osberg Viking ship, which is one of the most famous Viking ships that's been on Earth. Uh, it was this woman, she was buried with ten decapitated horses, 
and I think a couple of decapitated dogs. And they oh. think this is because they because they have the ships on land, but to get to the underworld you had to sail. It was in order to create a river, a convenient river of blood from your decapitated oh. horses on which you could sail um, to the underworld. Wow. Yeah, grotesque. Um, and also, so the first evidence of a ritual burial is from 28,000 years ago, of like a burial where people were sort of buried with items and it seemed like they believed in an afterlife. And it was two young boys and they were buried with mammoth tusks over two yards long, but they'd been straightened and we don't know how they straightened them. Wow. So they were, we think they boiled them and then straightened the mammoth tusks into, they were four feet long and just straight. Blimey. I have to change my will as soon as I get <laughs> That's what I want. I want ten decapitated horses and straightened the mammoth tusks. I read a thing that I want as well for death, um, which was that um, I was reading about... <laughs> it's weird when you read like someone's death and you're like, oh, I want that. They sounded really cool. Um, Utsi, who was the, um, the oldest ice man that we found, he was made of ice, he was, he, he was, I don't know what period he was from, but um, he was complete and they found everything on him. They found the bag which had magic mushrooms in it, they found he had shoes, he had socks. He right? had socks. But what's amazing is, is that they found him complete and what they don't point out is that they have found other people who are complete, but Utsi's a rare case because he was Etsy. just a whole, sorry? Etsy. Utsi. <laughs> Not a Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, though. Again, these are the kind of heckles. At Jonglers, it's like, you're shit. <laughs> Our crowds. Ertsy, dickhead. <laughs> Did I say it right? Ertsy. Yeah. Uh, so Ertsy uh, was found as a full, a full body. But then I read about these other deaths where they found other people. And basically, because of the way that, um, that tectonics and just the way that things shift, they found full bodies, but people oh, have no. been splatted and cartoonified. You know at the end of Roger Rabbit, where he splats and he goes into long form? They found people that are like just fully like huge humans in a huge long... Like a book of pressed flowers. Yeah! Like some pressed human book. And that's how I want to go. Which <laughs> <laughs> just look great. Look um, we're we're going to have to wrap up. We've got uh, only a couple more minutes. Is there anything else you guys want to add? Uh, one third of the world's socks are made in a single city in China. No way. Yeah, way. That's how it's called. But they get one third. They come in pairs. Andy, <laughs> what is one third of six? Two. <laughs> 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 Uh, we are going to have to wrap up. So I'm just going to end on that. Thank you so much, everyone. Those are all of our facts. Uh, if you want to hear more from our show, we've got plenty online. Uh, if you want to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said, our pronunciations, uh, you can get me on at Schreiberland on Twitter, James. At uh, Egg Shaped. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Uh, okay, so, uh, so that's it. We'll be back again next week with another episode from Soho Theatre. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, guys, for being here. We'll see you again next week. Have a good night. <laughs> Very drunk, and if you'd like to join us, that would be awesome. So, uh, yeah, hang around for a beer.